If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we are here to wrap up week 12 of college baseball action around the country. It was a busy weekend, a lot of pivotal series. There were a lot of of series that that matched one versus two in their various conference races, so we'll get into the ramifications of all that and more here on today's edition of the podcast. But first, Baseball America's college podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're here after week 12. We're very firmly in the stretch run, believe it or not. Uh, there are teams that have wrapped up their regular seasons, whole conferences that have wrapped up their regular seasons. Uh, the Patriot League and the SWAC, they are done. Patriot League actually starts their conference tournament this coming weekend. Uh, so the, the postseason is very clearly upon us. Later this week, we'll find out the shortlist for the, the hosting candidates. Uh, so a lot lot to to be had there as as we enter the stretch run and as i mentioned here with the the swack wrapping up conference play shout out to jackson state which finished swack play regular season swack play at 24 and 0 uh they uh they, they they run through the gauntlet go undefeated uh second team in five seasons in the swack to uh to accomplish that joining alabama state uh but stupendous season so far for the tigers and they'll uh they'll take that to the swag tournament which uh doesn't begin until next week but they'll uh they'll go in as the number one seed there yeah it's uh it's a little different to see an undefeated season put up in an hbcu conference for a team not coached by Merville melendez obviously Merville melendez became a little bit of a savant at, at putting together behemoth teams in the MEAC at bethune cookman and then swack with alabama state so an incredible jackson state jackson state team to go undefeated in, in, in any conference is, is incredible. And this team is, is an interesting one. It, it's not a team that, you know, if they end up in your regional, it's not a team you're going to want to see. They run all over the place. They've got speed up and down the lineup. They've got a bunch of guys with high batting averages. It just seems like the type of team that, you know, I, I, the, the best pitching staffs in a regional are going to be confident in handling them. 
But, you know, if, if you have an off day and you let them on the bases, it's going to be a tough day for you because you're going to constantly have to monitor the situation on the bases and keep them from just stealing all over you. And even if you come out with a win, that's the type of team that is just not going to be a fun matchup in a regional should they get through the SWAC tournament. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll look at them more, uh, as, uh, probably next week when they, when they start their conference tournament, it's, uh, it's an interesting week break here. I don't know if that's a COVID, you know, a, a week cushion for, for COVID makeups or what, but, uh, they, they will play, uh, that one next week. All right, Joe. Um, like I said, busy weekend of one versus two in a lot of cases around the country and nowhere was that bigger than in the big 12, and there we had Texas visiting TCU. The Horn Frogs had a chance to win the Big 12 title this weekend. They would have been the, the first major conference program to wrap up a conference title if they had done if they had gotten a series win. But Texas, they uh they they got on the way. They win on Friday, 5-4, back and forth. Absolutely amazing game. Great atmosphere there in Fort Worth, it looked like. Um, you know, just no, no team really was able to, to get much separation. And then finally the horns pull out that five, four win. Then on Saturday, TC bounced back with the two to one victory. And then on Sunday, the horns come out, take a nine, nothing lead after the sixth inning. Honestly, it could have been worse. TC got out of a jam to, to keep it at just nine runs. Uh, they they scored three garbage time runs in the ninth inning, but it was too little, too late. Texas wins nine to three. The Horns win the series and they extend the Big 12 title race. It'll now go to the final weekend of the regular season because the Horns are off this weekend for finals and the Frogs are playing a non-conference series against ULM. So whatever happens, it'll happen on the final weekend of the regular season. This was a big one. And uh, the Horns, they, they find a way there in Fort Worth. A big series win there goes without saying. I mean, we, we talked so much leading up to the series that it was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, series win or bust for Texas, truly, when it comes to being in the Big 12 race. And, and here we are. You know, I think it's not a huge surprise to see necessarily. I mean, I guess it's surprising that TCU's offense was coming in really flying high. But, it, you know, it wouldn't have been shocking at the end of the weekend if you'd have told me that, well, you know, Texas pitched really well. And, and that was a big part of it. And they certainly did, particularly the last two days, you know, Ty Madden wasn't the best version of himself in the opener, but they ended up getting a win. Tristan Stevens was really good in a loss in the second game. And then um, Pete Hansen, really nice start to finish off the weekend and, and on a day, frankly, when they didn't need a great start, but they got one, but I thought it was, I thought I really liked a lot of what Texas was able to do offensively, even in the game when they only scored one run, they kept a lot of pressure on and TCU frankly was, was fortunate to be able to hold Texas to just the one run because they, you know, they did a pretty good job against Austin Krobe, six hits and four walks and five and two thirds innings. You know, they were able to have some success against the bullpen there. They just couldn't really break through uh, for anything beyond the one run they got, but, you know, on, in the opener, um, you know, they did a good job keeping the pressure on. They got to Russell Smith. They scored runs on Charles King. They got a big home run from Mike Antico off of Drew Hill. And then obviously in the finale, we saw them pour on, nine runs. And so that finale with the nine runs is the only output that really stands out to you. But I thought it really was a pretty solid weekend offensively for Texas. And so understanding that this is probably never going to be one of the more explosive offenses we see come postseason time. I really liked what they did from the standpoint of doing enough to win the series. And I thought their output was, was fairly consistent, even though we saw very different run totals from game to game here. 
Yeah, I mean, you had Zach Zubia with a couple of home runs. Mike Tico scored six runs on the weekend. Ivan Melendez, seven for 12. I mean, when those guys are going, those guys have played a fair amount of college baseball between the three of them. Uh, Zubia and Tico, especially Melendez coming from the junior college ranks, but you know, still a, a, a veteran bat. Uh, if those guys are going to go, uh, you know, Texas has has a really good chance of, of putting together a nice offensive weekend. And that's what they did against... Uh, you know, in a, in a harsh environment against some pretty good TCU pitchers, at least at the start of the weekend, the thing about the horn starting pitchers that I really like, is just, they were all, they're all good. You know, they, they got good starts from, from the, the entire group. They held TCU to four earned runs in 20 innings, um, you know, just from their starters. They just didn't need much out of their bullpen and their bullpen was good, but they didn't need much out of it. And, you know, if uh, you're able to, to get that kind of starting pitching, especially on the road, you're going to be hard to beat. I, um, you know, it was good to see Texas bounce back. Like I, to me, that was the most important thing for Texas. Like, yes, they're still in the big 12 title race, but just after what happened at home against tech. And, and we started to see that on Sunday in the finale uh, against the red Raiders last weekend, but just having a response after getting upset uh, in those first two games in Austin last weekend, I think was, was the most important thing for the horns. And now uh, the the title race goes down to the final weekend. TCU still holds a one-game edge, but they don't have the tiebreaker now. So if uh, if they share the title, the Horns would uh, would be the number one seed in the, the Big 12 tournament. So, uh, you know, TCU clinging to that one-game lead. They go to Kansas State. Texas gets West Virginia at home. Uh, and in that, I definitely say advantage Texas, uh, Kansas State, you know, is uh, there's seven and 11 in, in big 12 play, but they did beat uh, Texas tech in Manhattan already this season, West Virginia, just seven and 14, 17 and 13, 17 and 23 overall. Uh, but they've just won five true road games this season. Uh, and even if you throw in neutral site games, it only increases to seven wins outside of Morgantown right now for, for the Mountaineers. So to think they're going to go in and really muck things up, for the horns is a little harder to believe, but you do also have to remember that uh, the horns have to better whatever TCU does by one game. So if, uh, if TCU wins that series in Manhattan, you know, the horns have to sweep West Virginia. So it'll, uh, it'll be interesting. Obviously TCU still, still probably the favorite here, but at least on paper, Texas has the easier final weekend. Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, the thing with Kansas state is they've, they've not been as consistent as I thought they would be, but the thing about them is that we've seen them in flashes. You know, we, we saw them win the series against Texas tech. We see games where Jordan Wicks is awesome. We see games where their offense hits a ton of home runs, but you know, we see far too many games like this weekend where they lost games to Baylor 17 to two and 23 to three. It's just been a really weird year for Kansas state. Like a talented team in a lot of places a veteran team in a lot of places and sometimes they show it but then sometimes they, they all too often seem to get just like completely blown off the field um so i don't know what to expect there they, you know they could win that series against tcu they could also get swept and have two really really ugly losses um i, I just have a lot more confidence in texas being at home taking a series from west virginia but you're right that the the tough part about that is, is that Texas has to has to do one better. But the idea that TCU wins a series against Kansas State and, and Texas sweeps West Virginia is certainly not outside the realm of possibility. 
Yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely say that that's, that's there. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see on that. The, the other thing that really struck me this weekend is that while I still believe TCU is probably going to Omaha because they're still probably going to win the big 12, just said, and their RPI is still in the top five. And all of that means that they're going to be a top eight national seed uh, in, in great likelihood, which means they'll be at home for regionals and super regionals. And like I outlined last week, they've only under Jim Schlossnagel 26 and five in at Lupton in regionals and super regionals. They've only ever lost one of them. Uh, it was like the 2011 Fort Worth regional, I think. So they just play really, really well at home during during the NCAA tournament. So I, I still feel perfectly fine about them getting to Omaha. But their Achilles heel has been very much laid bare over their, their series against Texas Tech and Texas, the two hardest teams on their schedule. And if you want to rewind it back to opening weekend, you know, that, that weekend as well. And the weakness is that they don't have the pitching depth to cover three, three games of high intensity against, uh, against premium competition. They are just six and six in weekend finales on the season. Uh, they've won one rubber game all year. They're one and four in rubber games. That one win was against uh, Louisiana Lafayette. They, uh, they got blown off the field in Lubbock on Sunday. And I thought at the time, like, eh, well, you know, that happens to teams. You know, you, you fall behind. Texas Tech really gets the offense going. And, you know, like, it'll happen. But then Texas very nearly run-ruled TCU in Fort Worth uh, on Sunday. And, you know, it, it, took, it took some high-wire act for TCU to, you know, keep that game going and to keep Texas off the board with, uh, with what would have been their 10th run. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very surprised by this. I just, you know, TCU's used like 20 pitchers this year. I thought, I, I just assumed, especially in a year with an uncapped roster, that TCU would have had the depth on the mound. They, they're supposed to have, this is supposed to be a very deep team all the way around. That was supposed to be one of the, the things that, that stood out about the Frogs this year. But it's become increasingly clear that if, uh, if they fall behind in a regional, if they get forced to play a game seven of a regional, or a game three of a super regional, you know, whoever their opponent is, is going to feel like they could be had that in that game, even if you are playing it in Fort Worth. And I think that that gets exact, I think it's a good point. And I think it gets exacerbated by the fact that they also don't, they have three really nice starters and they have, you know, they have a couple of nice guys. Well, in the I, but they, they have two now because they're going to change their rotation in all likelihood against ULM uh, Schloss said after the game. Right. So, you know, I, I the, the, the other issue that exacerbates the, the depth issue is that they they just have a hard time week to week getting good starts. I mean, they'll get, you know, Austin Krobe has been has been pretty good this year, but it's not like he's going out there and throwing like seven shutout. And then the next week it's six, giving up, you know, five hits and two runs. And then he's back to, to seven innings like it's they sometimes they struggle to get depth. Sometimes they struggle to get quality. And so it's not even like you can set your watch to getting two really good starts and then you're kind of winging it on the third day. Like a lot of times they're having to deep dip deep into the bullpen early in the weekend. And so 
they do have those kind of two compounding issues that I think are playing off of each other to create the situation that you're describing. And, uh, you know, I don't, again, I, I don't think it's stopping them from getting to Omaha. They have won. It's not like they, they have never won a, a weekend finale. They've, they've done so against some decent competition, but you know, it is, it's clear that that's, that's this team's Achilles heel. They are going to have to try and correct it. And, you know, I mean, Texas, it, it feels like really late in the season to be, you know, futzing with your rotation and you know, getting to this point. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, Texas, like, did this literally this week, moving Pete Hansen back into the rotation after spending most of the season as the midweek starter. He, uh, he, he made his return. You know, he kind of made his return to the rotation last weekend because he threw, like, seven and a third out of the bullpen um, after an early hook for Kobe Kubicek. Uh, but, you know, that clearly worked against Texas Tech, and it then worked again against TCU. So, if TCU can find the right guy, maybe they stabilize it quickly. But, you know, right now I wouldn't want to be trying to do that in, uh, in mid to late May, but you know, they, uh, they've got some options, I suppose. We'll, we'll see what they come up with next week against ULM and then uh, what they do against Kansas state as well. All right. Um, so that's the big 12. It is a two team race. Texas tech is, too far out of it at this point. I, if uh, I, I think the Red Raiders are a good team, uh, I think they'll probably host and all the rest of that. But they are. This is this is a two horse race at this point. And um, Tech, interestingly, did not play this weekend. They were supposed to play Illinois Chicago out of conference. Uh, that got canceled due to some issues with COVID nineteen for the Flames. Uh, so now Tech is uh, they're. they're they're going to be well rested <laughs> down the stretch, but I, I don't know if that's exactly the spot they wanted to be, but uh, that is, uh, that's the state of the big 12. Joe, let's head further West and let's uh, let's talk some pack 12. Uh, but first check this out. All right, Joe out in the pack 12, you had Arizona visiting Stanford. Those are two of the top contenders in the Pac-12. Coming into the weekend, I believe it was one and two. If not, it was one and three. Oregon, Stanford, Arizona all, all shuffled in there very, very tightly. But Arizona had started to get some separation going into the weekend. And if they could have, if they could win a series on the farm uh, this weekend, it, it looked like they might be, able, might be on their way to their first Pac-12 title since 2012. Instead, Stanford finds a way. Uh, they won a marathon on Friday night, five to four in 13 innings. Then Arizona, with its you know, incredible offense, came storming back for a 20 to two win on Saturday. I believe Stanford blocked an extra point and returned it uh, to the house uh, for, for their two. I think that's how we got to 20 to two there. And then on Sunday, Stanford you know, did not you know, they, uh, they, they were just able to, to brush that right off and they came back and, and really kind of controlled the game all the way on Sunday, uh, cruised to, to a, a, a series clincher. And now the PAC 12 standings are one jumbled mess at the top, Arizona, Oregon, Stanford, all tied on winning percentage. Um, Arizona has the most wins of the group. 
you know, we'll, we'll see how that, that shakes out now over the next few weeks. But uh, the Pac-12 races were really bunched up again, and Oregon State and UCLA are not far behind. Uh, probably not going to be one of those two teams winning it in the end. It'll probably be one of the top three. But uh, this weekend with Stanford winning it, first of all, that really announced Stanford as, as a host site in all likelihood. And then it, it also uh, keeps the, the Pac-12 race very much wide open here as, as we enter the final few weeks. Yeah, it felt like a, a confirmation and an announcement of, of Stanford as, as truly being who we thought they might be earlier this season. But they're one of those teams that because of just scheduling quirks and COVID cancellations and, and a lot of different factors that really we felt like we really didn't know much about to this point. And I think the statement they made this past weekend was huge. You're right in that it kind of jumbles up the Pac-12 standings, but it does clarify some things from the Stanford point of view where, to your point, it's probably going to be a host team as those are announced later this week. And it's a team that I think showed that, you know, it can win games kind of in a, in a, in a very Stanford way. I think we saw that this weekend, you know, it's, they, they had some, some good moments offensively, but, you know, ultimately they got into a, a rubber game and, and they won it comfortably. Thanks in large part to Alex Williams, you know, putting in his best start of the year with six shutout innings. And it kind of reminds me of the conversation I had with, with Dave Esker. Oh, I don't know, five, six weeks ago now where he said, you know, we're kind of treading water a little bit right now because we're just waiting until we feel like we're fully healthy and getting Alex Williams back uh, was a big part of feeling like they were back to getting, to getting healthy. And so uh, one guy getting healthy and getting right does not a complete team make, but it sure gets them a heck of a lot closer because before that they were really kind of patching it together on the pitching staff and the offense is, um, has continued to be incredibly productive. Um, you know, they're getting a lot, of contributions from a lot of different guys, but, you know, having a guy like Brendan Beck at the front of the rotation who turned in a good start this week, especially when you view it through the lens of this start was against the Arizona offense, you know, he turned in a nice start and then getting what you got from Alex Williams in the finale. I certainly feel a lot better about what Stanford's going to go to battle with once they get into a postseason situation, because um, that the offense is good. I didn't know if it was good enough to win a regional, especially if it gets behind the eight ball. Um, with what they had on the mound beforehand. But now that it looks like it's rounding into form a little bit, I, I think a little bit differently about that. And I think that they showed us quite a lot with the uh, series win this last weekend. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an intriguing team when you put that kind of Alex Williams into the rotation. Um, you know, I, they're, they're not going to outpitch you still. You know, if you have a kind of dynamite pitching staff, you know, that you 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 can you can outpitch Stanford, but they just look like a complete team right now. They've got a pretty good pitching staff. The lineup is uh, can beat you in a lot of different ways. Runs runs decently deep. Has a lot of a lot of just you know different kind of players. Got some speed. Got some power. Got some contact guys in there, and uh, they feel pretty well. And yeah, I mean they're just they're out there doing it. And you know it's still a relatively young team. Uh, a lot of these players have have turned over from the 2018 and, and 19 teams. The 18 team won the Pac-12. 19, of course, um, went to Super Regionals in Starkville. A lot of these guys were not a part of that team, or at least were in you know somewhat of a different role. Like Williams was on that team, Beck was on that team, but they, they weren't necessarily the, the stars there. And you know, so there's a uh, 
I, I think there's a nice mix of, of some veteran and some youth there, but a little more on the youth side and, you know, they're still growing up. And I, I think this weekend was, uh, was an important step for them. They have a difficult close to the season, probably the hardest close of the season of any of the, the, the top three contenders there in the Pac-12. This weekend, they're at Cal, then they're at Oregon, and then they're home against Oregon State to finish. So they're going to have to earn it if they do it. Um, it doesn't help that they lost their series against Washington due to COVID issues with Stanford. It wasn't Washington's problem. Um, but, you know, UW is, is down near the bottom of the Pac-12 standings, and uh, that would have been presumably a, a, a series win for Stanford. And, and so they're doing it without that. If, uh, if they can get through this run though, I mean, I, I think that they're going to host just fine. And, um, you know, we'll see if they can make a run at what would be their second Pac-12 title in three seasons. Um, you know, Arizona, meanwhile, I'm not concerned about them. They go on the road, they get beat a couple times. They very nearly could have won Friday. Then they, you know, steamroll on Saturday. What happened on Sunday isn't fantastic by any means, but it's a tough road series loss. Uh, it was really tight. I, I don't think it materially changes the way I, I view Arizona. Still figure that they host a home regional, probably host, if if they make supers, probably would still be at home. They have the RPI for a top eight seed if they can uh, win the pack. And, um, you know, I, I like their closing schedule in the pack. Like, I, I just... I think it's all still there for Arizona and, and what happened this weekend doesn't really, doesn't really change the way I'm seeing the Wildcats. Yeah, I'm with you. I, and I think, you know, outside of maybe getting sent to Fayetteville to play Arkansas, like I'm not sure there's a, there's like a less comfortable regional situation to be put into than, than Arizona in Tucson, just because you, you kind of know exactly what you're going to get out there. And, you know, in a regional to win a regional almost unless you're a host team good enough to do that kind of thing where you go three and zero and like you, you kind of don't even notice the regional is over because that's how little drama there was there. I mean, I would say a vast majority of even host teams at one point over the weekend, will get punched in the mouth a little bit and things kind of go off script in regionals oftentimes. And Arizona is just kind of okay with that because they're just going to, they're just going to bludgeon you offensively. And they only were able to do it one time last weekend to get Stanford, but at home, they're probably going to be able to do it a lot more. And so, whereas teams and regionals often get forced to go off script and win ugly games, like Arizona was just born into that. Like that's kind of how they want to win games. It's just, you know what, you're going to have to score at least one more than us and, and good luck doing that in Tucson. And so I, there's a very narrow number of teams that I would feel super good about going into Tucson and, and trying to win. And most of those, by the way, are going to be hosting their own regionals. So they aren't really a problem for Arizona until at least the super regionals in terms of that. Anything can happen, but man, that's just going to be a tough matchup with, for anybody. I say all that to say that I, I agree with you that tough series loss, but ultimately I, I'm not feeling any different about Arizona coming out of the weekend. Yeah. And I mean, on paper, this was an upset Stanford was the lower ranked team, but you know, it's a home series or in Arizona's case, it's a, it's a road series against a top 20 opponent. Like it's hard to say that they're really upset here. Um, but the, the PAC 12 race now going to be fascinating because they don't play conference tournament there. Uh, it, they have three weeks left. Arizona actually only has two cause they have a buy in the final weekend of the season. Um, you know, that's why they have more games played than Oregon and, and Stanford. Um, 
you know, so Arizona now really needs to, to make some hay over the final two weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll see if they can, uh, if they can get it, but I, I think they're going to end up watching uh, the final weekend, like doing some scoreboard watching to see if they, they win their first conference title since 2012, or if uh, someone is able to, to nip them at the end, we'll, uh, we'll have to watch that one, but I, I, that one's going to come down to the, the very, very end, I think uh, in the pac 12. Uh, let's stay out West now, Joe, head down to the big West, uh, where UC Irvine and UCSB came into the weekend, virtually tied atop the standings. Um, UCSB had played an extra series, but I think they had the same, they, they were, they were tied effectively. Uh, UCSB gets the series at home. They take Friday night's game. Uh, did not play out in the pitcher's duel between Trenton Denholm and Michael McGreevy that, that I was hoping, uh, but UCSB wins a, a thrilling game on Friday. Um, Irvine had the bases loaded with nobody out in the ninth, trailing by one run, and UCSB wriggled out of it for a win. Uh, but after that, it was pretty much all Irvine. They win the next three games. They really, their pitching staff really came to play over the next three days. Not that it didn't on, on Friday, but they really suffocated the Gauchos offense over the next three, three games. And they leave Santa Barbara in the driver's seat in the big West. Uh, the Anteaters now looking good to win their first big West title since 2009. It would just be their second ever. Um, very much solidifying themselves as the best team in the big West for me. Uh, very impressive weekend overall uh, for Irvine. And, uh, you know, just, I, I, it was, uh, it, it just looks like a really complete team. They, they have a couple of really good pitchers on the front end of the rotation in Denholm and Frias. Um, you know, they have a really, really strong bullpen anchored by King and the lineup runs pretty deep. They're the best offense in the Big West. They they're averaging seven runs a game, and you know they're just uh, they're just a well built team that that's playing at a, a pretty high level here. Yeah, it it feels like one of the more complete teams we've seen out of UC Irvine. I mean, perhaps you know that without the encyclopedic memory of all of Mike Gillespie's teams at UC Irvine, maybe the most complete team since Dave Serrano was there. Um, you know, because it's just not typically a program that you kind of get that, you know, that full, uh, you know, um, they, they can beat you in as many ways as this team can beat you. And certainly not, not winning the game that Trenton Denholm pitched, certainly coming into the season, we would have assumed that's not really a great recipe for UC Irvine to win four game series. Knowing what we know now, where we know some of the quality of their other guys and the fact that, that Denholm, frankly, hasn't been as good as we thought maybe he would be you combine those factors and it makes a little more sense now, but still, you know, he's, he's thought of as their best guy he is their best guy. I guess if you want to put it that way. And yet they lose that game and, and win the next three. And, and you're right. The way they, they just went after the UCSB offense, which is outside of probably, you know, the, the McGreevy Boone combination at the front of the rotation, the offense is probably what UC Santa Barbara has been most confident in this season. And Andrew Checkets has, has said as much that, you know, we've, we've actually been pretty good offensively and maybe better than, expected offensively to this point of the season, even when you factor in some of the injuries they've dealt with and continue to deal with. So the fact that UC Irvine won the series that way, I think is particularly impressive because I, I do think it shows that, look, this is, 
this is the team to beat in this conference. This is the most complete team in the conference because that's that's kind of what we thought UC Santa Barbara was going to be. If we, if we thought the offense was going to be a little bit better, yeah, it was going to be a pitching-centric team. But we thought, hey, this is unique in a big West that sometimes can be um, can produce some really pitching, light-hitting teams. Like this can be, um, you know, th- this can be a, a super complete team that can go beyond just being a good team in the Big West. And it actually, it turns out that, you know, we'll see what UC Irvine does in the postseason, assuming they get there. Uh, but certainly it's looking like they are the team that is in that position this season versus the Gauchos. I mean, short of them going like, Oh, and 12, I think they're getting there. Uh, yeah, their no, RPI is uh, very comfortably in the top 40 now. And, and I think they're pretty well locked into a two seat again, assuming they avoid collapse here. And it'll be interesting to see which of the three, presumably uh, there will be three PAC 12 hosts. They get sent to, I've been pretty consistently sending them to Tucson. Um, Gonzaga, which has been on COVID pause for a couple of weeks. So we'll see what they look like when they presumably come out of that this weekend. Um, but they're on track to be a two seed, assuming they get in and you know still look fine following the, the COVID pause. They would probably be the two seed in Eugene. Uh, like that makes a whole lot of sense. Irvine could go to Stanford, could go to Tucson. They already played Stanford this season. The committee doesn't really care about that that much. Like they show that every year. The, you know, they, they should care and they don't care. Uh, we've already seen four Stanford and UC Irvine games. So I would probably rather see them go to Arizona. Uh, they would maybe rather go to Stanford. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe they don't care, but uh, they're probably going to one of those two places and I, neither Stanford nor Arizona is going to be thrilled to see them there because it's a, it's a good team. And they have uh, they have some veterans, you know, Den Holmes in his fourth year, and some of those hitters are, have really been around the block. And like I said, it's just a it's a complete it's a complete team that they're they're running out there. Um, from the Gauchos' perspective, though, in terms of the tournament, there, I mean, we've had them on the bubble basically for the last month plus, and they're probably more firmly there than ever. They really could have used at least a split this weekend. Their RPI is in the 60s now. Um, they have a big opportunity this weekend against UCLA, but they've had two really big opportunities at home this year uh, already against Oregon and against UC Irvine, and they're one in seven in those two weekends. So if, uh, if the Gauchos do get left out, and I don't think they should, I think they're deserving, but if the Gauchos do get left out, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to feel like it's anyone's fault, but their own getting two top 25 teams at home for eight games and only winning one of them. You know, that's uh that's rough. Um, this is a split weekend with UCLA. They get one home game. They're in, uh, in Jackie Robinson stadium, but in Westwood twice. So we'll see, we'll see uh, if the Gauchos can, you know, come back at a get would be what would be a big series win, or at least find a way to to ramp up that RPI a little bit uh, to make themselves feel a little more secure going down the stretch. Yeah, it'll it'll be a big weekend, and I feel like we've seen this. It's a different situation. I don't remember all the the ins and outs of it, but you know, UC Irvine back in 2019 was a bubble team right until the very end. You and I debated them. I think you know, literally every week for the last four or five weeks, they were just always right there on the bubble, and they end up missing. And it's a, a different situation. I, I feel like that UC Irvine team just didn't have a lot of chances against really good teams. So it was like, we don't even know what they would do because they just didn't get that many cracks at it. 
Santa Barbara is a little bit different and that can cut both ways, right? Because you can look at that and say, well, they, they haven't done anything against the chances they've got against the best teams. And then the, the flip side of that as well, but they have a couple of wins against the best teams and that can be more than another team that didn't have any chances against those types of teams. So it's, it's a, the logic on that is, is kind of weird, but sometimes it can play into a team's hand. So we'll have to see they, I mean, they're They have work to do period end of story the rest of the way, regardless if they want to even be in the conversation, but we definitely have seen this story before where the big West team on the bubble kind of towards the end of the year for the entirety of the second half of the year and just falls a little bit short. So that's the kind of danger they're in at this point. Yeah. And you know, you would hope in a year where um, RPI is so strange and, you know, Santa Barbara hasn't played anyone outside of the West coast. Like you'd hope some of this gets taken into account, but you know, it's really hard to expect that and know whether it's going to happen. And, you know, I don't know what the regional advisory committee is going to rank them as, but when you consider that they've missed these big opportunities and they're going to break behind Irvine for sure. And behind the top PAC 12 teams, um, you know, all of a sudden you start getting pushed pretty low in the, the, the rack rankings. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's just, it, it feels like a very bubbly team, whether or not you agree with the, the idea that it's a bubbly team, like whether they should be or shouldn't be, uh, the, the whole resume is just screaming out bubble. And right now it's kind of screaming out bubble out. So they're, they're going to need to find a way over these next three weekends to, uh, to get something done. Uh, alrighty, Joe, let's, uh, it's been long enough. Let's talk about the SEC. <laughs> let's give the people what they came here for. Um, there was a lot happening in the conference this weekend, nothing like really top line headline stuff, which is why we're as deep into the podcast as we are without talking about them. But, uh, let's, let's whip it around. Like we did with the ACC last week or the week before and kind of take it from there. Uh, you had Arkansas winning a series against Georgia. They got pushed to a rubber game, but they win again. They're still in first place. They're still number one in the country. Uh, this is the 11th straight week now that Arkansas is the number one team in the country. That's the most since 2013 when UNC was number one for the first 13 weeks of the season. Um, you had Mississippi State going to South Carolina, winning a series, probably killing the Gamecocks hosting chances. Uh, Florida goes to Kentucky, wins a series. Um, Kentucky will feel like they got robbed or that they really missed an opportunity, depending on how they're feeling on the day, I guess. Uh, in game two of that series, with Kentucky having already won game one, uh, Florida down to its last strike. Uh, Kentucky feels like they get a strikeout of Corey Acton. The umpire calls a ball. Acton winds up tying the game. And then Kendrick Callilau sends a three-run home run out to give Florida an 8-5 lead. Uh, Kentucky doesn't do anything in the bottom of the ninth. They lose uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of shouting after that game uh, from from the Kentucky bench. And then Florida comes out and, and wins the wins the finale to to take the series. Uh, that one's a really tough one for Kentucky's. Uh, bubble chances they uh they they really could have used that one and now this weekend against South Carolina is is a must win for the Wildcats uh AM won a series against Ole Miss Tim Elko homered he tore his ACL like literally four weeks ago uh he homered 
Uh, and Wilfred Zell homered five times. And that was pretty cool. He's now second national or tied for second nationally uh, behind Matt Nelson with 18. Uh, Vanderbilt didn't have Jack Leiter. They scratched him late uh, before his scheduled start on Saturday and said it was basically just to give him, uh, you know, to help manage his innings. Uh, we'll certainly be monitoring that situation going forward. Uh, but it didn't matter. They won the series against Alabama. Game three was washed out um, on Sunday there, but the Vanderbilt won the first two games. Kamal Rocker was not his best on Friday night, but he still struck out 13, kind of a confusing start. Uh, he's had a couple of those already this season now. Uh, but again, despite not having the best of Rocker and not having lighter at all, Vanderbilt uh, knocks off Alabama. Uh, so, Joe, those are your SEC headlines. Uh, take it wherever you want to. It's quite a platter of items. Um, again, nothing that like super stands out in bold. I think there are some interesting big picture things here. One of which is, you know, Ole Miss losing that series against Texas A&M. And I promise when I say what I'm about to say, I don't mean this as a, I truly don't mean this as a slight because this is life in the SEC. Life in the SEC is tough. And, you know, if you can go through that gauntlet, come out on the other end and have your big picture goals intact, like God bless you, you know, like I, I truly don't, and this is not a slight, this is me not taking a dig, but I think what has happened with Ole Miss and the sweep of South Carolina the weekend before last was huge. And I don't want to discount that because that wasn't that long ago, but given how much they've struggled really over the last six weeks, it is amazing in, in, in a league like the SEC, how much you can kind of stumble. And I know there are a lot of restless fans in, in Oxford that are upset that they haven't really had a lot of success against the very best teams on their schedule, but there's enough cushion here. Like you can really take a lot of lumps in SEC play and get battered and beaten and bruised and then come out on the other end. And Ole Miss is still right there in the hosting discussion. And that's just kind of amazing to me because it, you know, the, the discussion around Ole Miss has just been so, We've talked about series loss after series loss and, you know, uh, you know, Hoagland has a forearm stiffness issue and, he, you know, he's. Oh, yeah, I forgot to include that in the, uh, the headlines. That one's, that one's rough. He left after two outs. Right. Which is not the, you know, not the first time he's left to start earlier, missed a start this year. Yeah, he missed a start two weeks ago. Yeah. So there's that. And then, you know, Nikhazy is back now, but you know, he obviously missed starts and then they're trying to figure out their third starter and, you know, Tim Elko's hurt and, and now he's back, but in a limited capacity and the bullpen, you know, really struggles outside of Taylor Broadway. And sometimes Taylor Broadway struggles like he did this past weekend against A&M. And it seems like we've just talked negative after negative about this old Miss team. And understandably so. I'm not saying that we're being mean to them, but they've just really struggled. And yet here they are, you know, still really in pretty decent shape. And, it, and I think it does go to show again, setting the South Carolina sweep aside that in that league, if you take care of the business against the teams, now they didn't do it against A&M, but for the most part, if you take care of the business against, you need to take care of against the teams you need to take care of, you're going to be in pretty good shape here because nothing else is going to be so damaging to you that it really knocks you out of that race. But it's, it's amazing just given how negative the discussion around Ole Miss has been for six weeks now. And yet like all of their, all of their big picture goals are really still just right there in front of them. Ole Miss is in a very interesting spot here. They have Vanderbilt at home this weekend. Then they go to Georgia. They're 14 and 10 in the SEC. Uh, they probably need to go 500 against Vanderbilt in Georgia to feel really good about hosting. Uh, 
even if they went two and four, they maybe could, especially if they won on Tuesday in Hoover, but it would be a little tighter for them. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're going to be in our projected field of 64 is hosts this week again. And, well, they could uh, be, I mean, it's, it's been a rough month for them. <laughs> couldn't they be like, I mean, they might be the poster child for what, I mean, cause they're, they're going to get either announced as a, as a host candidate or not here in this week. Now they might be part of the 20 and not part of the 16. And they're definitely going to be announced as a candidate. RPI 11, 14 SEC wins at this point. They're, they're, they're a candidate. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's the thing. I, I mean, I guess that's where the difference is, but because it's at this point with, with them announcing 20 hosts to narrow down to 16, the idea that someone's going to host as a, two is really kind of out the window now because they can always they can just we're not going to have four of those teams or more than unless odu went crazy and you know odu didn't bid and if they went crazy and won cusa and like that's the only way i can envision it happening yeah so like that scenario which is probably good by the way like don't get me wrong i I, i'm a good agent for chaos like i I love a good chaos situation but um it's probably good that we're, we're not going to have to worry too much about that because that that was it but but yeah i mean so your, your point is valid i mean the, the thing Ole Miss is going to get announced is the 20 and and they have like a, a difficult stretch but this was a team that hosted at 16 and 14 just a couple of years ago so i mean there it is right there yeah i mean i would expect it to happen they'll be on the in the, the 9 to 16 part of it unless they go win the sec tournament um which i mean they've done not that all pretty recently. It's that 19 that they won that. It's either 18 or 19. Um, I guess it was 18. Vanderbilt won in 19. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's all on the table for them. We'll, we'll see where they go from here. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting spot that they're in. Um, we talked a little bit about Kevin Copps last week on the Thursday podcast about could he be in like the player of the year discussion. And all he did this weekend was throw seven and third scoreless against Georgia, win a game, save another, uh, just pile up some more strikeouts on, on scoreless innings. So uh, that's now officially a thing that's, that's being talked about is can he, can he win various awards? Uh, I'll just let you know, we got in on that discussion early. Um the yeah I, the rest of this i mean the the mississippi state thing is interesting to me joe that this is a team that i feel like i just kind of after they lost to to vanderbilt having been swept by arkansas going one and five against those two teams i was just kind of like well yeah they're a good team but they're like they're even maybe a great team but they're clearly not an elite team they went one and five against the two best teams in the country and I guess I'm still kind of there, but what Mississippi State has done since then and before then, just really any time that they've been playing anyone other than those teams, is uh, they just they just keep winning. <laughs> they run off win after win. Their game behind Arkansas in the uh, in the West, and honestly, they'll feel like they missed an opportunity not to be tied with the Hogs because they lost on Sunday to South Carolina in a game that they probably feel like they – I mean, they, they clearly had a chance to win. Uh, they were winning late. They just couldn't quite finish the deal. Um, they're up to two in RPI. Like it's uh, it's a team that's going to be seated really highly in the tournament. We have them ranked third, and you know the gap between them and Vanderbilt at two is not as big as I perceived it to be. You know when they when they lost that series. Yeah, certainly the, the that gap has has closed in perception and probably in reality. Because so much has fundamentally changed. I mean, setting aside the, 
understanding exactly what the deal with Jack Leiter is. I mean, we'll, we'll take them at their word. It's just kind of an innings management thing, but even, you know, um, out, you know, even before the, the uncertainty of that situation, like we talked about last week that teams had kind of figured something out with him and even rocker. We, you know, we, we talked about how rocker had maybe gotten past the point where he was struggling. Cause he had, he had kind of had a couple tough starts then bounced back from it. And now he just, you know, he, he's been better on the whole, but he still does have times where he's getting hit a little bit. This past weekend was, was another one where Alabama had some success against him. So Vanderbilt does look a little bit more human than they did coming, especially coming out of that series win against Mississippi state. And to your point, Mississippi state, man, they just, they really do just keep winning games. And, you know, it, it's one of those deals where they might be in a group all their own in the pecking order. Like if, if you still want to say, because Vanderbilt, if, if rocker and lighter are healthy are still a cut above that that's fine. So we'll put Arkansas in, in a group with Vanderbilt and call them the elite of the elite. And then really Mississippi state might, be in a group kind of by itself from the rest of the country um, just because they do just have this kind of way of, of, of just kind of continuing to pile up wins. And they, they didn't do well against the two best teams on their, on their schedule, but they've done well against literally everyone else. And I wish they would play Tennessee. I, I yeah, wish that was a yeah. series that's happening. Cause I, I just think those two teams are pretty similar. Yeah. Tennessee feels similar in that way where against the best teams they've had on their schedule, they've kind of, eh, you know, they've had some shaky moments, but against pretty much everybody else, they've looked just fine. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see the Vols this weekend against Arkansas and kind of find out what, what, what tier they belong in there. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's clear right now that at least uh, Mississippi state has, it's creeping up on Vanderbilt and um, you know, I, I don't know what to make of, him scratching lighter at this point um i'll know more as we uh, just as time goes on we'll, we'll know more about what what exactly that is um and how he bounces back from not only his rough stretch here but now um you know begin being given some extra time he is just a, a second year freshman it's important to remember this that um as much as everyone wants to or many people, especially Vanderbilt fans, want to yell that he's not a freshman. Anytime we publish a freshman of the year watch list, uh, he is. And what you're seeing is why I guess we included those players in the freshman stuff because, you know, they hadn't gone through a full season, you know, just like if they had been uh, knocked out by injury at, at on March 12th last year, you know, they would have been afforded a medical redshirt and come back as, as redshirt freshmen. Like that's, there's a reason for all of that. And, uh, you know, some of, some of them, you know, you're seeing it, uh, some of them you saw it earlier in the year, but some of them you're seeing it now. So we'll, uh, we'll be monitoring that. And, uh, it's a, it's a big deal for Vanderbilt, obviously, because so much of them being this unbeatable team is, uh, which I mean, and they are beatable. They've lost two series this year, but so, so, so much of this is, uh, is wrapped up in, in them having rocker and lighter. So, We'll, uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, all right, Joe, let's head to uh, South Bend where Florida State was taking on Notre Dame. Um, big spot for the Seminoles coming into this, uh, you know, host site announcement. There's some idea, I think, as people look around and say, well, the ACC's got to have more than one host, right? Like uh, looking around trying to find a second host and saying, well, maybe if Florida State beats Notre Dame, they can get on that list of 20. We'll find out if that if that happens now because Florida State went to South Bend 
they beat the Irish uh, twice. They uh, they won on Friday behind Parker Messick, uh, who was really good. Then the Irish came back and took game one of a doubleheader on Saturday. And then Florida State uh, went out and won the rubber game in the nightcap. They become the first team all season to win a series against the Oma Irish. Uh, they are still the Oma Irish. I am I am not budging off of that. I you know, everyone's allowed one, right? Like they hadn't lost a series all year and the best pitching staff in the ACC, uh, one of the t- best pitching staffs in the country period went out, did its thing uh, and they got them. Uh, that'll happen. I still think Notre Dame at home uh, in the, in the postseason is going to be a force. And I, I, I feel good about them still making it to Omaha, but I, what we've seen from Florida state now, Joe is uh, we talked about it. They, they pitch really well. They have enough offense. Uh, and that was the formula and, and it worked. Uh, it worked this weekend for them. Yeah. It was kind of to the script. We thought they could, they could pull off, which is, you know, pitching well against this Notre Dame team and really, really leaning on its strength. And, and we saw that and they, they, they did just kind of squeeze every last ounce of, of run scoring out of the, you know, the, the, the hits they put on the board, because it's not like it was a, you know, a hit Palooza in the games that, that they won. And I, I don't think I'm with you. I don't think it changes anything from Notre Dame standpoint, because, you know, every, every team does kind of get that one weekend. And when they, when a team doesn't have a weekend like that, like Arkansas, it's even just more impressive than anything else. And, and Notre Dame just hadn't had one of these yet. And, and furthermore, they'd had some close shaves. I mean, if you really go back to early in the season, you know, they, they had a close shave against Duke, for example, you know, like it, Duke, it just Clemson, Boston College, all of them for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, they had been a little bit on the high wire with this kind of stuff. And, and I finally... mean, Louisville fans are probably yelling right now about how they didn't get a right. chance to to play game three. And Notre Dame definitely would have won that game, guys. It's OK. I heard you canceled that game. That's what Twitter <laughs> no, I, I wanted I, them you... to play so that Notre Dame would have won that series. Yeah, I just that that's the rumor I heard. Many people are saying that you canceled that game. <laughs> That's uh, that is absolutely fake news. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I think for, for Notre Dame, I think you just kind of uh, as disappointed as I'm sure they are. Like you just kind of like, ah, you know, you press on everything. They're still going to be a host team. They're still a team that has proven they can, they can win against good teams. They could go to Omaha. They could do all that stuff is still in front of them. But for, for Florida state, I mean, this was huge for their hosting chances, which, you know, as well as I do that uh, they did just win this series in South Bend, but they would much rather be playing in Tallahassee in the postseason. That has always been true with Florida State, will continue to be true with Florida State. And this was certainly a, a big one in that in that regard. Um, it's that's just going to be such a murky mess in the ACC, and I can't wait to see the way the committee decides to view the ACC because it could go any number of ways in terms of awarding hosts in that conference, but this is the best series win anybody in the ACC has put on the board. I don't think there's any doubt about that given the way that Notre Dame has really separated itself from the rest of the league, particularly going into the weekend. Uh, Florida State going on the road to do this, I think, is, is as loud as anything anybody's been able to do in the conference. And so we can nitpick here about 17 and 13 in the conference versus, you know, the 16 and The fact that they're still behind and, Louisville in the standings and they lost head-to-head to Louisville. Yeah, like, I mean, you can, <laughs> you can really get into these, like, these like, uh, you know, rat nest situations of trying to like figure out what's what, but in terms of, of quality series wins, like nobody's going to be able to best this. Yeah. I mean, I don't really want to get into Florida state's hosting resume because either they will or they won't be on the short list this week. And like, personally, I find it lacking again, like they lost to Louisville. They're behind Louisville in the standings. They lost to Pitt. Like these are the other ACC host contenders. Like, 
unless you're going to put them all in that 20 mix. And I don't think you can, like, I, I don't, I don't know that I see Florida state belonging, but um, you know, they are, I think they're better than their record. So there's something to be said for that. And like you said, best, uh, best series win in the ACC this year. What I do want to talk about though, Joe, is something that I was thinking about last night that isn't really all that important, but isn't unimportant either. Uh, so Florida state is 25 and 17. They have 10 games left in the regular season. They're guaranteed two games. Uh, I don't know if they're truly guaranteed. They're ba- they're going to get two games at least in the ACC tournament. Um, and then let's just put them in regionals and say they're guaranteed two games there as well, obviously. Uh, so they have what, what I just guaranteed them. I guaranteed them 14 more games. Uh, winning 40 games at Florida State's a pretty big deal. I don't know if that's going to happen this year. Obviously, this is a very unique year in that the ACC limited them to 50 regular season games. So that's six shots at this that they're they're not going to get this year. I don't know if Florida State fans are going to cut them slack on that or not. But Joe, do you think 40 wins is is a viable thing for this team? I mean, to me, basically to get to 40 wins, they're probably either going to have to play for the ACC title or play in Omaha. Yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, what really helps them is they, I mean, they do have Florida four against Florida Gulf coast, which is a good team, but you'd expect them to win at least three there. I think that's, they got to win three of those. If they, if yeah. they don't win three, there's, I don't think there's hope yeah. for 40. Yeah. And they very well could win all four Florida Gulf coast, is a good team, but like, you know, going to Tallahassee and winning games, there is a whole different deal. Yeah. And I mean, FGCU is, is good, but like they've, I mean, they've Stetson got them sometimes and like they, they certainly it, they're, they're beatable for sure. Yeah. It's going to be really, really close. It, so it's Gulf coast Clemson and then at NC state to finish the year. Yeah. And the, the trouble with some of that too, is like, I would feel much better about Florida state's chances if Clemson and NC state were just slightly had slightly better records than they do right now, because those are both going to be series that Clemson and NC state feel like they need to, they need to do something in. Um, so that, you know, th- there's another scenario where that, that those last couple of series, maybe, teams are toying with things a little bit or just kind of trying to get ready for conference tournaments and postseason, all that kind of stuff. But that's certainly not going to be the case here. It's just, it's going to be really, I'm with you. I mean, they're going to have to make a run somewhere, whether it's ACC tournament or through the postseason, they're going to have to make a run somewhere. And it's tough, you know, it's tough to see with this team because as, as good as they looked last weekend, they've also just had times they've stubbed their toe and, you know, they've lost a series to Louisville and lost a series to Pitt. You know, those are, two of the better teams they played and they came up short in those other two series. So the idea that they're going to really get it together and make a, make a, a deep run is, is just tough to see. And I would say that about basically any ACC team, except Notre Dame at this point, honestly, I mean, we've talked about that ad nauseum. Yeah. I mean, I, I was texting with Mike Rooney last night and he asked me how many ACC teams over under one and a half would be in Omaha. I said, under sounds like you're in the same boat. Uh, there, Joe. But I also do think that it would be very much like the ACC in 2021 if uh, we looked up and saw Virginia or Miami or, you know, like one of those teams, Georgia Tech in Omaha, along with Notre Dame. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. That's exactly, you know, these teams, the most ACC thing that happened last weekend was Georgia Tech sweeping Clemson one week after losing a series to Kennesaw State and one week after Clemson had swept Louisville. You know, like, and that's just um, probably the 
just most drilled down distillation I can give you of the ACC in 2021. Well, that and the fact that Florida State beating Notre Dame, I can't believe I didn't mention this until now, completes the wheel of destiny. They have all been each other now. I knew, I knew, I had faith we'd get there. I, <laughs> I, I had faith we would get, I thought Notre Dame would trip up at least once. And then here they are. It's, uh, it's remarkable. And, you know, the, the really remarkable thing about this, because I've, I've thought about it as, over the weeks since I've been like inching towards completing this thing, like, well, I mean, doesn't this happen in other conferences sometimes? Like, doesn't the, this happen in the Big 12? And yeah, I'm, it probably does. Uh, but the ECC has 14 teams and they're, they're still pulling this off. So, you know, absolute huge props to them for doing it and doing it in less than 10 weeks. Like, I mean, yeah, they're playing 12 ACC weekends and, uh, I guess it did happen over a 10 week stretch or whatever, but like, uh, they, uh, they got it done early. They didn't, they didn't leave this one until the final weekend, like the big 12 race or whatever. They're, uh, they're out here completing the wheel of destiny early. So shout out to the ACC. Uh, all right, Joe, let's, uh, let's hit on one more of these, um, big time showdowns that was in the American East Carolina was hosting Tulane. The green wave had passed the pirates, for first place coming into the weekend. Uh, believe in the weekend, the Pirates, uh, they rode through the wave. They righted the ship. Uh, they're, they're back on course. I don't know how many more nautical themes I can put into this. Uh, they're in first place again. They're just ahead of Tulane. They won three games. They're on track to host. Uh, things are back where they should be in the American. Yeah, the, the, uh, I hadn't really caught the uh, nautical theme, but you had Pirates and you had Green Wave. I, I don't know that I've ever really caught on to... Uh... To that kind of thing um but there we go uh one of uh there's we have pirates privateers and commodores in college baseball too a lot of um different types of uh, boat captains if you will um <laughs> privateer is just a pirate that's like it's a it's a licensed pirate oh a licensed pirate like yeah no, that's uh, the government sort of board like, yeah no the back then like the government uh would like let you let you loose <laughs> go be a pirate for them basically like that's oh. that's what a privateer is so is it, it not I, I don't think america ever had them but like you know some european countries have them so is it more like a the privateer is like an undercover agent kind of thing where they let i him think go it was like a militiaman kind of thing like huh. like we don't have enough ships to patrol this part of the the world like spain i think had them and like in the Caribbean, like obviously a lot of pirates were there and like, so Spain couldn't devote enough resources to, to protect all of its various colonies. So they would, they would like commission these things. So it was, they're freelancers is what they are. Yeah. What's going to happen here is my dad is going to listen to this episode in like two days and finally make it through to the end of this. And then I'm going to get like a whole like reading list of like how I got privateer wrong, but uh, well, let me know. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Let me know. I mean, that sounds right. I believe that. I think that's, and Commodores, of course, is that's on the up and up. Like, that's all, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I wish I'd been a little bit more, I don't, I don't know the right word, but a little more firm in my belief on the preview podcast because I kind of had a feeling this is what we were headed towards. East Carolina plays well at home. That's a tough road trip. Those are all things we mentioned on the podcast, but I kind of got the sense that, that East Carolina might be in a, a good position here. And, and I think that the first game gave you a pretty good taste. You know, they, they were all over Braden Oltoff from the jump, you know, Oltoff put up some zeros early, but East Carolina was hitting the ball hard. It just felt like a matter of time. And it was, and then on the mound, Gavin Williams was, was really, really good and, and set the tone and gave the offense time to, to jump out to what ended up being an insurmountable lead. And Tulane fought back 
Um, you know, they, they won a game in the series. They played them tight in, in one of the others. But East Carolina just clearly looked like um, a motivated team. And, and certainly in, in, in this case, I think the more complete team, they flex their muscles with the bullpen as they so often do. They used seven guys in the finale of, of the series and it never really felt like they were getting close to the end there. They, they just, they just keep coming. Um, so that is clearly a strength as we've talked about before other good news for East Carolina, Carson Wisenhunt came back and it looked pretty good from what I could tell three shutout innings. So um, obviously he will be, it'll be a process for him, but I think they're probably eyeing getting him back in time for the postseason. but that was a good first step for him. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know for, for Tulane, I, I, you know, I don't know if there's anything they really could have done. I mean, it's just such a, a tough team to play on the road. And they had two, you know, game two games that weren't close and two games that were. This could have, I guess you could, I guess you could squint and say this could have easily been a split, but I don't know. I feel like this was probably closer to being a sweep than anything else. Um, so Tulane just felt like a pretty good team that just isn't quite as good as ECU. And there's no shame in that. Um, but going into the weekend, certainly it looked like this could have been a statement for Tulane and, and they just fell, they weren't ready for this. They just fell short. Yeah. And, you know, road wins in the American this this year, they're just going to be hard. Road conference uh, um, series wins, I should say. And to get one at East Carolina, it's just, it's not going to happen, I don't think. I mean, you can split, UCF split there two weeks ago, but I, I think that's the best you're hoping for. But it, I, I felt going into this year with them playing four, four games and those teams in the American pretty consistently being very... Uh, evenly matched there just weren't going to be that many road series wins this year that's I haven't like looked to see exactly how many there have been but that's pretty well been borne out uh you know Tulane has one at Wichita and, or at um Memphis and Wichita has one at Houston but uh there aren't many of them out there and and you know that 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 played out again this weekend now Tulane they're 57 in RPI we've had them in kind of bubbly in um for the last few weeks, they now go home to play UCF and then they finish at Cincinnati. Uh, it feels harsh to say they don't really have much more margin for error, but I'm not sure how much more margin for error they have. Uh, they're they're going to have to have to do well here. The RPI went up. Um, I told Joe offline you know, last week that I felt like the Americans situation was going to really be helped here just by Tulane going and playing for road games in East Carolina, it definitely has been helped, but maybe not as much as I thought it would have been. Uh, Tulane actually has only the third best RPI in the American Wichita's ahead of it. So uh, while Tulane definitely has the edge on Wichita in terms of being in the tournament picture, uh, they're, they, they, can't, they can't afford to, to slip up and, and slip behind the shockers in the standings here over the the next two weeks because that might well uh, really imperil them. And again, this is another team that has had opportunities. We talked about this with UCSB. Tulane has had opportunities this season. They just they haven't taken advantage of them. And they've, it's been harder than UCSB because theirs came on the road. Yeah, but they went to Mississippi State. They went to uh, they, they, they went to ECU now, and they played Louisiana Tech at home, and they have two wins to show for all of that. So. You know, if if they don't make it, it it's going to be no one. It, they'll, they will at least have had the opportunities and they wouldn't have cashed in on them themselves. Yeah, it's one of those deals where, you know, I I do think this is probably 
I don't know. I, I guess I, I pause there because I, I don't, I don't, what do we know? But I do get the feeling this is probably, <laughs> <laughs> this league has just been so hard. I mean, the reason I hesitate is this league has been so hard because the, you know, it's, it's one of, it's a, it's the number six RPI conference in the country. And we feel like Tulane's pretty good. And, you know, we, but we were so off on, on, you know, UCF and, and maybe there have been valid reasons for that. And we thought Houston would be better. And so this league is, and then we thought Wichita state was, was maybe the team and then they've fallen back. And I continue to think that there's a chance for this to be a two bid league, because I think I've been surprised the degree to which it's kind of held on to its standing in, in, in things like RPI. And so I, I think there's a pretty good chance for a second team here, but you're right in that Tulane doesn't have a whole lot of rope left. And then you wonder what happens in a situation where let's say you go to the conference tournament and East Carolina doesn't win it and Tulane doesn't win it. Let's say Cincinnati or UCF wins it. And so now you're at two teams and now, now are you going to get a third? Like that might yeah, be, I think that scary. depends on what Tulane did to not win the tournament. Like ECU's in regardless, but you know, does Tulane go 0 and 2 in Clearwater or do they lose to Cincinnati for the conference title? Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that just serves to illustrate like how, how this is a tough balancing act for this conference though, because Tulane stumbling down the stretch and losing a series to either of the two teams it has left, that's probably a knockout for them. You know, them going to the conference tournament and exiting early is probably a knockout for them. Some other team other than East Carolina winning the conference tournament and Tulane not looking great in the conference tournament is probably a knockout situation, you know, so Wichita state just going on a tear, you know, and maybe passing them in the conference standings is a knockout situation for Tulane. Maybe that puts Wichita in position. Maybe it doesn't. Um, so it just feels like there's a lot of trap doors for the American down the stretch. So I continue to have some confidence more so than I did, you know, when I wrote that article that, you know, it could be a one bid league. I have more confidence now in getting a second team, but they're not just going to be handed one. I don't think. And that's where the trouble is. Cause there are a lot of thorny situations down the stretch. Yeah, the bubble has really tightened. It wasn't that long ago that I was talking about how, like, you know, we have to get to 64, and so, like, we'll get to 64. But, like, now, with some of these major conference teams, like, looking at you, ACC and Big Ten, um, you know, with some of those teams closing strong, or at least, you know, they're not truly closing yet, but getting getting hot here in the second half, uh, bubbles bubbles starting to tighten. Uh, even some things happening out west, Um you know, it's, uh, it's starting to get there. And, you know, at some point, some of these conference tournaments will go the wrong way for teams. And, you know, the, you'll lose some bids that way. And, you know, the American still has work to do. Um, I do think in general that the committee is probably going to rely on some historical norms in such a strange season. Um, and that would seem to indicate a second team for the American, but like, like you said, they're not just going to be handed it. Like it's, it's not that situation. Um, you know, I, I, I think that some, some slack will be cut for a conference like the American, uh, but I, I don't, they're not going to get a whole lot of it. I don't think, uh, but plenty of time to talk about that as, uh, as selection Monday gets ever closer. Uh, real quick here, Joe, just want to mention that there were four no hitters thrown this weekend. Um, there were two others that were broken up in the ninth inning, uh, including one was broken up with two outs in the ninth. Elliot Carney from Wofford nearly had his second no hitter of the season on uh, Sunday against the Citadel happened to really late at night too. I don't know why they were playing so late on Sunday, but they were anyway. Uh, but Justin Campbell from Oklahoma state threw one 
Nick Domkowski from Hartford through one, Austin Werner from NC Central through one, uh, and Walker Powell from Southern Miss through one. And Joe, I think interesting, not to slight what Campbell and, and Powell did in, in any way, but the, the interesting thing about those for me was you know, Vernon through his for, for NC Central, a team that is going to be eliminated in like four four weeks whenever whenever the Eagles finish their season, the program is done. And Domkowski through his just a few days, just two days, I guess, after Hartford decided that they were dropping, going to drop from Division One to Division Three sometime in the next few years. So a couple programs that are not going to be Division One programs in the next few years uh, had some real highlights this week, and you know, especially Domkowski doing it so soon after after that decision came out of Hartford. I, I think that um, you know just makes it a little more special uh, considering the circumstances. Yeah, no doubt. Those, um, yeah, two, two, you know, two teams that have a chance to extend their seasons, frankly, you know, um, so that would be obviously good, good stories there, uh, for, for both of them and, and good auditions for whatever's next for them. You know, I know Austin Vernon is, is a prospect and he'll have a chance to play pro Bowl after this season. I'm, I'm not as, I'll be honest. I'm not as, I, I mean, Dimkowski is, uh, he doesn't throw as hard as Vernon, but I, I think he'll probably get a chance to play minor league baseball if he wants to. I mean, at the, at the very least, he, he you know, it, it appears I'm, I'm scrolling his his uh, bio page now. It appears he does have another year of eligibility. If nothing else, nice audition for going somewhere else. Uh, certainly he could be. Doesn't Vernon too, actually? Elsewhere. Vernon technically does. I guess I'm just assuming a guy that with Austin Vernon's prospect profile is probably not going to come to that. He is in the transfer portal. Um, I can't confirm that. But, um, you know, w- whether or not he needs that, I guess, is I'm a little Yeah, the Hartford curious. situation. You know, they might play Division One next year. They probably will play Division One next year. Right. So, like that—that that whole yeah. situation is messed up. Yeah, that is kind of, that is kind of a weird. Yes, yeah, <laughs> messed up is, is certainly one way to, <laughs> one way to put that. Um, you know, Walker Powell, interesting because that. I mean, I think that just adds to the fact that I think you and I both think Southern Miss is a team that if they don't end up hosting, it's certainly not a team you want to see show up as a two. Um, especially if you're Ole Miss, maybe, you know, Mississippi yeah. State, you know, like, <laughs> um, I mean, that's definitely a regional Ole Miss could lose. Southern Miss goes there. Southern Miss is, could really ruin your weekend. Um, so that's, um, that's that. Wofford is, uh, by the way, just a stray thought here. And uh, for the, the Wofford faithful that, that may be listening here, and thank you for your listens. Um, have you given a stray thought to the fact that like Wofford is tied for the best record in the SOCON? have you given a thought to like how good they would be if they weren't in the crappy situation of like the fact they couldn't bring back all their grad guys because they don't have a grad school. Like they've got, they've got guys in every major program on the East coast at this point, basically. They they do. I actually hadn't thought that I, it was just catching up to me that Wofford is actually legitimately this good because like, I knew they were good, but like, you know, you look at their season, it's been a little like they've never been down in the SoCon standings, but they've, also not been leading it for very long. Like the SOCON has really turned over. Like you wrote about Western Carolina two weeks ago and like they've gone in the tank since then. Samford yeah, has uh, been a little up and down. Meanwhile, Mercer's going crazy and like Wofford has climbed to the top of their division. So there's been so much churn in the SOCON. I, I haven't, I had not considered that. I had just been thinking like, oh, hey, Wofford, like they uh they might have a chance like after what happened last year was so disappointing but i had not then had the next thought of like oh yeah and all those kids transferred like uh yeah it's uh it's impressive what what they've done there because they did have they lost 
want to say it was a dozen players basically just like you're saying like they regardless of whether Wofford would have brought them back or not they couldn't because they had graduated there are no graduate programs uh there at Wofford College it's college for a reason not university I that's guess. right yeah it's it's just it's great you know and it's not a one-to-one like I'm sure there are some guys who are really taking on starring roles this year that wouldn't have played if those guys so you, you never know but like there was a chance that team was just going to be really, really historically excellent for the Wofford program. And, and now we'll, we'll never know. But I remember filling out last off season, I was doing the, the transfer tracker and it seemed like every other day there was some guy committing somewhere else that was put up big numbers at Wofford. And so you, you just kind of left wondering, um, but uh, yeah, interesting situation there for sure. Absolutely. Well, there've been a lot of no hitters in the country this year, but to have, there were three of them on Saturday and there could have been a fourth on Saturday and like to nearly get six on the weekend was uh that was special. Um, obviously, no hitters are up at all levels of baseball these days, but still, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see. All right, Joe, we covered a lot of ground today. Um, there's plenty more on the website. If you guys are interested, that's baseballamerica.com. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And we will be back here later this week on Thursday to preview week 13 of the college baseball season. It's a little lighter, frankly, like I'm not going to lie to you guys right now, but it does have a top five series with Arkansas and Tennessee. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely get into that on Thursday and more. Hopefully by then we know host sites, but you know, we'll see it sometime this week, probably later in the week. Uh, hopefully we can, can break down the, the 20 candidates for you on the podcast. Uh, so look for that on your favorite podcasting app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the Baseball America podcast and hit that subscribe button. We appreciate everyone who has done so already. We also appreciate Rapsodo for presenting the Baseball America College podcast as they always do and for everyone for listening to this episode. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.